There's nothing little in God. His mercy is like Himself. It is infinite. You cannot measure it. His mercy is so great that it forgives great sins to great sinners and then gives great favors and great privileges and raises us up to great enjoyments in the great heaven of the great God. It is undeserved mercy, as indeed all true mercy must be. As we look at Genesis chapter 43 this morning, if you haven't picked up on it yet in our songs and even in that quote, our theme this morning is the mercy of God. Genesis 43 is a chapter of mercy. And mercy, simply put, is not getting what we rightly deserve. When we think about mercy from God and Christ, it's not getting what we rightly deserve for our sin against God. Our sin against God is the highest form of treason, against the God who created us, who created us to be in a relationship with Him, created us in His likeness and His image. And because of our sin, we're deserving of God's judgment and His wrath. But but God's mercy works for those who put their faith in Jesus, those who repent of their sin, that we don't get what we deserve. God has mercy on us because Jesus stepped in as a substitute in our place to make the penalty for our sins. You see, mercy is closely connected to God's grace. And a lot of the songs we sang this morning, we sang about mercy and and grace. And they can often be thought of as really two sides of the same coin. Grace is a, a gift that we don't deserve. When you're given something by God that you don't deserve, that's God's gracious gift, while mercy involves what we don't get, not getting the punishment that we rightly deserve for our sin. Well, do you know the mercy of Jesus? You may know about the mercy of Jesus. You just heard our our church sing about the mercy of Jesus, but do you know that mercy personally? Have you been shown mercy and received mercy from God through faith in Jesus? Well, Christian, do you live in the power of our merciful Savior, the basis by which God relates to you since the moment of your conversion, since you were born again to have faith in Him? It's mercy. But how can you grow to live more and more in light of God's mercy, to enjoy His mercy, to know His mercy more. I hope you'll consider those questions and more thoughts and meditations about mercy as we make our way through Genesis chapter 43 this morning, a chapter all about God's mercy. And the main idea that I want us to see in Genesis 43, if you want to write this main idea down, in your notes section, or put it down on your phone, or somewhere you're taking notes. Here's the main idea of Genesis chapter 43. In God's providence, He arranges all things to show mercy to His people. In God's providence, He arranges all things to show mercy to His people. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and take your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 43. If you're not If you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible, you don't own a Bible, use that Bible right in front of you on the pew rack. You can turn to page 
36 of your pew Bible. It's Genesis 43 on page 36 of your pew Bible. And if you're here this morning and you don't own a Bible, we're so glad that you're here with us. And we want you to use that Bible this morning and then take it home with you and continue to use that copy of the Bible. We're going to be looking at all of chapter 43 of Genesis this morning. It's where we've been this semester is picking back up on the story of Jacob and Joseph. In the last chapter that we covered last week, we saw that Jacob sent 10 of his sons down to Egypt to get food during a famine. They were running out of famine. and The seven years of famine had come just like Joseph predicted it would come as God gave him that truth in a dream. They went to Egypt where they could buy food. And it just so happens that as the 10 brothers went down to Egypt, they crossed paths with their brother Joseph. In God's providence, they, they met the brother they had sold into slavery 20 years prior. Now, they didn't recognize him after all of these years. A lot of years had passed, and he was now in a position of authority, second in charge behind Pharaoh in Egypt. They didn't recognize him, but he recognized them. And rather than reveal his identity to them, Joseph concealed his identity to put them through a series of tests. First off, we saw last week he put their brother Simeon in prison as a type of hostage, telling them to go back home to retrieve their youngest brother Benjamin and to come back with him to Egypt, and then he would set Simeon, the captive, free. But there were several barriers to returning to Egypt. One, they were afraid they'd be accused of stealing. So when they returned from Egypt, they noticed that the money they were supposed to pay for those sacks of grain had been placed back inside of those sacks of grain. Now, they didn't know this, but Joseph had ordered his servants to put the money back. They thought surely they would be accused of stealing. And the second barrier was that their father, Jacob, refused to let them take their youngest brother, Benjamin, back to Egypt. So in our last sermons, we finished off chapter 42. We were left with a cliffhanger. Would the brothers return to Egypt? Will they pass Joseph's test and prove to be faithful and honest men like they claimed they were? Or would they leave their brother Simeon behind in Egypt, just like they had done with Joseph years prior? As we consider Genesis 43 this morning, we're going to break it up into three parts. And we'll see three movements of God's mercy in this great chapter of mercy. The first movement we find in verses 1 through 15 The first movement in verses 1 through 15, requesting God's mercy. Requesting God's mercy. Now, the famine wasn't letting up. We read in verse 1, it was severe in the land. There would be seven full years of famine, just as God had told Joseph. And chapter 43 begins with Jacob directing his sons to return to Egypt to buy more food. Now, it's interesting what motivates Jacob to have his sons return to Egypt. It's getting more food. It's not to go rescue your brother Simeon. It's like, like, oh, I'm concerned about Simeon. I, I can't sleep. All right, boys, go back and rescue him. No, he's getting hungry. They're running out of food. He's the holdup. He's the delay. Jacob chose to let Simeon sit in prison rather than depart with his youngest son, Benjamin. He refused to let him go until he started to get hungry, which hungry can often be a motivating factor in our lives. Here in verses 3 through 5, 
uh, we see that Judah, he steps up and tells his father that if you'll send Benjamin with us, then we'll go. He maintains that the man, remember they still don't know who Joseph is, but the man in Egypt would not see them if they returned without Benjamin. But Jacob's not moved by this, and so Judah presses on. And look what he does in verse 9. He offers himself as a pledge, saying, I will be a pledge of his safety. Now remember that in the last chapter, when the brothers were trying to persuade Jacob to let them take Benjamin back to Egypt, Reuben had an offer. He had a plan that he proposed. He offered up his two sons as a pledge, which was a terrible plan. And the reason why is that it passed on any consequence, any threat of harm, not to himself, but to his two sons. We see here of Judah, he was willing to offer up himself. He puts himself, his own life, on the line as a pledge. He's willing to put his life on the line to rescue the captive brother and to save the people of Israel from famine. Now, what we see here of Judah, it is a glimpse of a changed man. We spent some time looking at Judah. It might have been one of the most uncomfortable sermons you sat through, at least at the beginning. We went through Genesis chapter 38 because we want to look at all of God's word. And it was an ugly scene back in that chapter when we considered Judah. He had left his family, had gone to settle in disobedience away from his family, settling in Canaan. His life quickly started to look like the lives of the pagan people around him. Unbeknownst to him, he ended up sleeping with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And she was pregnant by him. And when she revealed that by producing his signet ring and other belongings, when he was confronted with his sin, he admitted his guilt. He repented. He turned away from sin. And that was the beginning of transformation, I believe, there at the end of chapter 38. It ended with this turn away from sin, the beginning of transformation for Judah. But what we see here in chapter 43 and following about Judah, I believe, is a changed person. He's no longer selfish or using others. Remember, it was his idea. Like, hey, rather than just kill our brother, let's profit off of him. Let's sell him into slavery. He used people. He abused people. He was selfish. That was the picture we've seen in his life up until this point. But here he shows up as a sacrificial leader of the family, pledging his own life in the place of his younger brother, Benjamin. Now consider how the original audience would have heard this. Moses, the narrator of Genesis, writing to the wandering people of Israel, the Old Testament people of God, they would hear this and they would see change and transformation in Judah. Judah was the one who would go on to become the leader in Israel. His tribe would become the largest tribe amongst the people of Israel. Through Judah, the covenant promises made to Abraham would be fulfilled. Kings would come from the line of Judah. And this is the first time in the Bible that we see Judah as a leader who was self-sacrificing, willing to lay down his own life to save the people of Israel. He's starting to look like an honest and faithful man. Well, think about this. A self-sacrificing leader, willing to lay down his own life to save others. Does that type of language, Christian, sound familiar to you? Just like the Old Testament people of God would hear this story, and it would call to mind God's work of transformation. 
the New Testament people of God, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, the church, we can look back on this moment and we can look forward from Judah to Jesus. From the line of Judah came kings in Israel. We see from his line came King David and King Solomon. We've talked about this a number of times. And ultimately, the king of kings, Jesus. Jesus came to save. Jesus came to lay down his life. He was willing to lay his life down, and then he did. He died on the cross to pay for sin. We read in the New Testament Gospel of Mark, and Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. While Judah and Joseph, they both played roles in saving the people of Israel from death by famine. Jesus, the Son of God, He alone saves people from their sin. That's why He died on the cross. Jesus came down to earth to die. He wasn't merely martyred. His was not a life that was tragically cut short, that He died all too soon. No, that's why He came. He came as a ransom to pay for sin, to stand in the place that you and I deserve, the place of judgment, absorbing God's wrath through His death on the cross as payment for sin. He rose from the dead on the third day that you would be saved from your sin against God, saved from judgment and God's wrath if indeed you would admit your guilt, repent of your sin, and trust in Jesus Christ alone, His death and His resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. We get from Judah to Jesus, spiritual salvation. This is an important moment in the book of Genesis. Well, Judah, he steps up and his proposal is accepted by Jacob. We see there in verses 11 through 13, he instructs his sons to bring a present and to double the money so that if they were accused of stealing there the first time, they could pay for the grain from the first trip and they'd also have funds to pay for more grain that they could take back for them to live off of. Now, the present they were taking back, it was a way for them to seek mercy from Joseph. But these provisions and the present they carried, they were not the ultimate appeal for mercy that day. You see, the main appeal for mercy in this chapter was made to God Almighty. Look there in verse 14. Jacob prays a blessing over the brothers, appealing to God and to his mercy, saying, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me... If I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. The main request, God Almighty, have mercy. You are full of mercy. We're in need of mercy. It was wise to take the present. It was wise to take the provisions and double the money. I think it's a wise step of human responsibility, but ultimately the appeal is to God and His mercy, trusting that God was in control. This name, God Almighty, it was revealed back in chapter 17 of Genesis, when God made covenant promises to Abraham, covenant promises to make him the father of a multitude of nations. Remember in Hebrew, that name God Almighty is El Shaddai. That means the God who is sufficient. The name El Shaddai, God Almighty, it emphasizes the power of God. He's full of power and he's merciful. He's full of might he is completely able. He does whatever he pleases, 
and he shows mercy to those who turn to him. You see, this assurance is found in his name. God Almighty is able. He's full of power and he's full of mercy. Where else can we go? And so Jacob appeals to God in his mercy. Now, praying in this name of God, God Almighty, it called to mind the covenant promise that God made to Abraham. Remember, their, their lives were on the line. They were facing famine. They were going to starve to death. They needed mercy. They needed food. The promise made to them would not continue on if they died, right? Or God might have another way to fulfill that promise, but they were appealing to God's promise and therefore His mercy. And even at the end, He submits Himself to God's will. You see, prayers are requests. They're not demands. We don't come demanding before the throne of God. We're called to come and to request, ask boldly, ask regularly, ask often, pray small prayers, pray big prayers, ask God to work. This is a big prayer, and he submits himself to God's sovereignty. He says there at the end, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved, which is a picture of lifting up requests and submitting that to God's good providence. To him, he left it all. Well, the greatest need for this dangerous journey, it wasn't the present, it wasn't double the money to appease Joseph. The family's greatest need was for God's mercy. And so Jacob prayers, prays excuse me, a prayer of blessing. Now they head down to Egypt with the blessing that God Almighty, trusting Him to bring mercy. Well, Christian, I wonder how often you pray to God for mercy. Often in your prayers, do you ask God for, for mercy? Again, mercy is, is not receiving what you deserve. It's a wonderful prayer to pray in the midst of prayers of confession that we should recognize as Christians how often we fall short. Far too often we sin against God and break His commands and don't trust His loving authority over us. Far often we don't fear Him, we don't honor Him with what we do and say. And so we confess our sins and we appeal to God for mercy. I've heard it said that prayer is the forerunner of mercy. You pray and you ask for mercy. We see that in the New Testament in Luke, chapter 18, verse 13, with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee trusted in what he did, in his good works, in his obedience. He was trusting in merit, not in mercy, his own merit. But the picture of the tax collector in Luke, chapter 18, verse 13, he prayed for God to be merciful, though he was a sinner. You see, praying for mercy recognizes that in ourselves, in our own merit, we are totally undeserving of God's mercy. Yet in Christ, we have the freedom to pray and to ask. You see, you can pray for mercy that you would grow spiritually. Far too often, we see ourselves making decisions that don't set us up for spiritual growth. Far too often, we give our attention and the meditation of our heart to our social media timeline more than God's Word. We're not deserving of spiritual growth, but God is so merciful to show that mercy to us, and we can ask Him for that. Pray for mercy and ask, for God, ask God for a greater hunger for Him. Ask God to grow in your faith. Ask God for the mercy to know His Word more. Those prayers bring delight to Him. You can pray for mercy in your relationships, in your marriage, in your parenting, Though you might even have guilt this morning of how you failed this past week, 
You can appeal to God for mercy, for growth, for change, for help. And your relationships with other members of this church. You can probably think how you haven't loved and encouraged as you've ought, not been as concerned for the spiritual growth of others as God would have us be. We can pray for mercy in relationships here in this church. You can pray for mercy in your physical strength. Physical strength is a good thing. There are some members who are not here this morning because physically they can't be. They're at home dealing with injuries, dealing with sickness. We are praying for them. Physical strength, physical health is a good mercy to pray and to ask God for. Prayer is the forerunner of mercy. Brothers and sisters, let's keep asking and requesting for God's mercy. Let's consider a second movement of mercy. We find this in verses 16 through 25 receiving God's mercy. That's a second movement of mercy we see in this passage. In verses 16 through 25, receiving God's mercy. Now, when the brothers finally arrived in Egypt, Joseph saw them from a distance, and he puts a plan into motion by having the steward of his house prepare a meal for him to share with his brothers. But in verse 18, when the steward brings the brothers to Joseph's house, we see the brothers are afraid. They weren't expecting an invitation to a meal. They're afraid they're in trouble because of their first trip. They're afraid they're in trouble because of the money that was missing. In their mind, this could all be a trap. They think, they fear, this isn't going to end well. And they say there, in verse 18, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So thinking that they were about to be seized and taken in as servants, they try to avoid all of this by explaining to the steward of the house the situation. They're going up to the steward and see, no, see what had happened was this, right? What had happened was we actually didn't take this money. In verse 20, he says, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we've brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put money in our sacks. Now remember their claim to Joseph in the last chapter. They said we are honest men. Honest meaning upright. Righteous men. That's what they maintain. And Joseph wanted to test them. And after all, he'd been gone for over 20 years from them. What he knew of them from their past was anything but honest, but he wanted to put them to the test. The reply of the steward there in verse 23, it had to shock them. He didn't come to bring them punishment or interrogation, but he came to bring them peace. He replied, peace to you. Shalom. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. His response pointed to the hand of God being involved in all of this, working in all of this. God had provided for them. And with that, they get their brother Simeon back, their captive one, set free. This was the type of mercy that Jacob had prayed for when they departed on their trip. He prayed for God Almighty to show them mercy that Simeon and Benjamin would both be sent back. And here we see God's mercy unfolding. Brothers and sisters, again, prayer is the forerunner to mercy. 
Jacob asked God for mercy, and here they are receiving mercy. God's mercy is unfolding. Now, we should pray, and I mentioned this earlier before the pastoral prayer, we should pray out of obedience to God. We find in places like Luke chapter 18, verse 1, that we ought always to pray. Prayer is a privilege, it's a gift, it's also a responsibility. We pray out of obedience to God. Certainly, obedience must be a motivation in our prayer lives. But consider that another important motivation to pray is that God hears and He answers the prayers of His people. God is more willing to answer our prayers than we are to ask. He's willing to hear, to answer, to work, to show mercy through our prayers. You know, one aspect of our life as a church that I love is how much we pray, how much we get to pray on Sunday mornings, how much we get to pray on Sunday evenings. I I love how much we get to pray together as a church body at our church. I know that more prayer goes on in smaller groups and individual gatherings that happen throughout the week, but I love in our corporate life together how much as a church family we get to pray together. We ask a lot of requests to God, and let's keep asking But I think it's also important to take a moment and reflect on how God answers those prayers. I think God has answered so many prayers, we've forgotten how many He's answered. Seven years of praying and the replanting of this church. Some of you are sitting here this morning, you've been praying for a long time for this church. You've been lifting up requests for a long time for the good of this church, and God has been so gracious to answer. I think it's a good exercise to look back and meditate on God's mercy through answering prayer. One big one recently that we got to celebrate was Lauren and Zach Monona. Lauren had a very difficult prognosis, and they called out the troops to pray. They called out this church body to pray. We prayed for them on Sunday night. They came to one of our elders' meetings, and in the spirit of James chapter 5, we laid hands on Lauren, anointed her with oil, lifted her up to God, and asked Him to heal. He is a God who heals. I don't have the power to heal. I don't think in the New Testament you do either. I don't think we get to touch each other and heal, but God heals. And we pray and we come to Him, and we are invited to ask bold prayers like, God, we know the doctors don't have an answer, we know they give a terrible prognosis, but ultimately you're sovereign and you're in control. And it was such a joy, Zach and Lauren, for you to stand up here last month and to share our Sunday evening prayer gathering. God's mercy to you. A difficult prognosis totally turned around. Praise God for His mercy in answering prayer. Consider the prayers for this church being replanted seven years ago. God has given us Mercy after mercy after mercy. A church that was nearly empty back in 2015. Though empty, filled with faithful saints. Saints who prayed. Saints who longed to hear God's word. Saints who wanted God's glory to be displayed through this church, submitting to the Lord. Through the twists and the turns of the last seven years, through a difficult and unforeseeable hard 2020 and 2021, God was just so merciful to us. God not only sustained us through one of the most difficult seasons that churches have faced, that any pastor I know alive faced in 2020 and 2021, but we didn't return inside to a main hall that was half empty. We returned to a main hall that was full. More people than we first started. God was merciful. He didn't have to do that. We weren't deserving of that. We shouldn't presume upon His mercy in the future. He'll do whatever He pleases. But we can thank God and meditate on His mercy. God's mercy in just a month, Lord willing, we will celebrate 
86 years as a church. November. November 1st, I believe it is, right? November 1st? November 1st. We should celebrate 86 years as a church. 86 years of gospel ministry. 86 years of God's word being preached. 86 years of the gospel of Jesus Christ going forth from this corner at Monroe and Eaton. 86 years of God's people lifting up request to him. It's all by God's mercy. Brothers and sisters, let's keep asking for God's mercy. Let's keep asking and expecting his mercy. Let's follow the direction found in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 from the Apostle Paul. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And I hope you'll join us tonight where we continue, Lord willing, at 530 to offer up prayers to God. God's been so merciful in answering. He's answered so many prayers. May we meditate more and more on his mercy and just how merciful God's been with us. Let's consider a third and final movement of mercy in this chapter, verses 26 through 31, reconciling by God's mercy. Reconciling by God's mercy. I didn't put reconciled there because it's not going to be complete in this chapter, but they're heading the right direction by God's mercy. In the previous chapter, when Joseph interrogated the brothers, they claimed to be honest men, they claimed to be upright, and even though the brothers had passed the first test and returned to Egypt with their younger brother Benjamin, the testing continues on in waves. All of this testing was to see what kind of men they really were. Were they faithful? Remember that, that Hebrew word for test. It means to examine and prove the worth or the value of something. Due to their past actions, there needed to be a test to see what kind of men they were. And Joseph moves forward with this plan. In verse 26, the brothers, they bow down to him and give the present they had prepared. All 11 brothers bow down to him. Just like he dreamed back in chapter 37 with the dream about the 11 sheaves bowing down to his sheaf. The 11 stars bowing down to him. They even bow down to him a second time there in verse 28. The word of God fulfilled. And in the strangest way, in God's strange providence, going through all of the suffering and hardship, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery in Egypt, decades away from his family, but the Lord was with them the whole time. And here they are, bowing down to him. Indeed, his humiliation, it came before his exaltation. Now, the last time they had seen Joseph, he spoke roughly with them. That episode, it wasn't without mercy, but Joseph was testing them, he was interrogating them, but his posture this time, it's different. He still has tests for them. He shows them hospitality, though. He, he welcomes them with generous treatment. His approach was one of mercy. Consider what they deserved. Again, they had conspired to murder him, lining themselves up as enemies. Maybe you have. Maybe you're here this morning, you've had someone threaten to take your life or try to take your life. That, that had to have been a fearful moment. Most of us don't know what that's like. But to have someone attempt to take your life, they, they threw him in a pit, betrayed him, sold him into slavery. These were enemies. These weren't people you say, hey, come on in, let's share a meal, let's recall good old times. What good old times? 
He had no reason to know that they were repentant for what they did. He had no reason to expect they were changed men. What they deserved was punishment, and he was actually in the position to punish them. He had authority. He had power. He could punish them, but instead he used his power to show them compassion and mercy and kindness. Jacob had prayed for all of this, for God Almighty to show mercy. And God was continuing to answer. I mean, so far their captive one, Simeon, has been set free. And here they are, by God's mercy, being welcomed into Joseph's home, invited to share a meal, enemies seated around the table. Well, how would this meal play out? Where was all this going? Right off the bat, we see that Joseph wants to know about Jacob. How's he doing? And after he finds out about his father, that Jacob's alive and doing well, he finally lays his eyes on Benjamin. It's been over 20 years, and he finally sees him. At the end of verse 29, he speaks a blessing over Benjamin, saying, God be gracious to you, my son. This word gracious, it's, it's a blessing. It's the same word found in the blessing in Numbers chapter 6, verse 25. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. He's blessing Benjamin. And after finally seeing Benjamin and blessing him, this is all too much for Joseph. We read in verse 30, then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. This is the second time we've seen Joseph weep. It's not that he's merely embarrassed about weeping. He still hasn't revealed his identity to them. So he needs to continue on his plan, but he finds a place there to weep. The first time we saw him weep in the last chapter was after he overheard his brothers admitting their guilt. But what stands out here, this weeping, look where it's coming from. A compassion that is growing warm for his brother. Now that Hebrew word for compassion in verse 30, I don't go into this stuff a lot, right? This is the homework I do, which I'm just trying to teach, but this is important for us to know. The Hebrew word for compassion in verse 30, it's the same word translated mercy in verse 14. Mercy, verse 14, compassion, verse 30, same word. In other words, mercy and compassion go together. What, what Jacob prayed for in verse 14, happening there in verse 30. You see, mercy is the compassion and the kindness shown to someone whom it is in one's power to punish or harm. Joseph could have punished them. I wouldn't have been wrong, but he showed compassion, mercy. God shaped Joseph to show mercy. The Lord was with Joseph all these years, shaping him to be merciful just as God is merciful. Well, Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, His Holy Spirit lives in you, and you've been shaped to show God's mercy. You've been shaped to look like Him and to love like Him. In Luke chapter 6, verse 36, Jesus commanded, be merciful even as who is merciful? even as your Father is merciful. God shows mercy and kindness to the ungrateful, to the evil, to those who weren't loving Him. He stepped forward in love, showing mercy, and so should we. Oak Baptist Church, 
how might you show mercy more often to those around you? Are your relationships characterized by mercy? How can they look more and more merciful at home, at work, tomorrow, wherever it is in your daily life? How can you show mercy from God? Think about the power of kindness, the power of compassion, the power when someone's not treating you in a nice manner, you still show kindness and compassion. You don't relate to people where you're at work, just someone who treats you like a jerk, you'll act like a jerk right back. No, you're showing mercy. You're showing kindness. You're demonstrating this is how God treats His enemies. And to show mercy is to look like God and to love like Him. You see, Joseph, all these years, he was being shaped and transformed, the presence of the Lord with him. Well, the presence of the Lord is with you and I, Christian, in an even greater way than I think it was with Joseph all those years. We live after the death of Jesus and his resurrection, after the day of Pentecost. All of his spirit poured out on all of his people. And the fruit of the spirit promised to be produced in our lives, that we would walk in love and joy and peace, that we would be those who love like God loves others. How might you be more merciful in your words and in your actions this week, all for God's glory? Well, Jacob had prayed back in verse 14 for God Almighty to grant them mercy or compassion. Here in verse 30, prayer, answer. Joseph has a warming, compassion and mercy on Benjamin. God Almighty is granting mercy to the family, mercy that came through Joseph. And Joseph, he pulls himself together to keep this moment going. He brought them there for a meal and another test, and so he presses on. And we see in verse 32 that according to the custom, they ate in separate groups. In verse 33, we get the detail that the brothers were were seated, though, according to birth order, from the firstborn to the youngest. And the brothers don't know what to make of this. We read there, and the men looked at one another in amazement, likely wondering, how did he know this? How does he know our birth order? Wondering what is happening here. But here comes the test. Right at the end, we see in verse 34, that Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. Not twice as much, five times as much. This is not because Benjamin was just a growing boy and hungry. It's not what's going on here. This is a a test. Here was the test. All the brothers were treated mercifully. All of them were treated with generosity and kindness. They all received a portion of food from Joseph's table. But Benjamin received the greatest portion of generosity. Five times what his brother received. The greater portion, typically you'd expect, would go to the oldest, the firstborn, but not here, the youngest. Now we see why Joseph sat them in birth order, to make it unmistakably clear. Look at your plates and look at Benjamin's. Five times is more. The youngest got the blessing. The youngest got the favorable treatment. Now consider what Joseph is doing here. He's recreating the situation he was with and his brothers in the past. When he was blessed and favored by his father Jacob, when he donned the multicolored coat, when he shared with him about the dreams, he received two dreams from God. 
showing that he would be the leader of the family, they hated him. They were envious towards him. They had a heart of envy, and they sought to kill him. Their hatred intensifying towards a place of murder. Well, how would they treat Benjamin? That's how they treated Joseph in the past. How would they treat Benjamin now? How would they respond to him being blessed and favored? Well, the chapter closes with their response. And they drank and were merry with him. Not, no mention of hating him. No mention of animosity. No mention of a heart of envy towards him. They ate. They drank a lot. That's what this is saying here. And they were merry with him. They weren't envious of him. All 12 brothers. They thought there was just 11, but all 12 there. Together dining, eating, drinking. This has the feel of reconciliation. Now, they're not completely there yet. There's still some more tests to come. But in God's mercy, they're moving towards reconciliation. Now, these tests aren't over, but the transformation of the people of Israel, it's gradually being displayed. I mean, consider what we've seen so far, glimpses of transformation in this chapter. Number one, Judah rises as a self-sacrificing leader. Number, number two, the brothers don't leave Simeon behind in Egypt. It seems like Jacob was okay with that, but the brothers are determined they're going to go back and they're going to get Simeon. They're not going to leave him to die in prison, but they return to rescue. Number three, they demonstrated honesty in approaching Joseph's steward about the money that was found in their sacks of grain. And next, they were prepared to pay restitution. They knew it was right to pay for that grain, to pay for the next round. And then finally, they don't show envy towards Benjamin, but dine with them and are merry with them. God's mercy is being poured out on this family. And they're being transformed and shaped by His mercy. All of this began with a prayer. A prayer to God for His mercy, to God Almighty. And God's mercy is seen throughout the story of this chapter. Joseph serving as the human agent through whom God showed mercy. Joseph showed mercy, setting Simeon, the captive, free. Joseph showed mercy, welcoming his enemies. Joseph showed mercy, bringing enemies in to dine at his table. For those who put their faith in Jesus, that all may sound familiar to us. This scene from Genesis 43, it's a picture of how Jesus treats his enemies. You see, Joseph looked forward to Jesus. Jesus, the, the mediator of God's mercy, fully God, fully man, the mediator that God chose to send to mediate his mercy, to save people from their sins if indeed they would repent and believe in Jesus. You see, the mercy of Jesus sets captives free. The mercy of Jesus welcomes enemies, sinners. The mercy of Jesus seats enemies at his table. The greatest display of mercy and grace is found in Jesus. You couldn't make this story up. You couldn't make the story of the Bible up. You wouldn't write anything like the gospel. It's written by a God of mercy himself. He came up with a plan to demonstrate his mercy in the greatest way, that there'd be no greater display of mercy and love and kindness. You'll never know a compassion like Jesus, the Son of God, the one that you and I have sinned against, enemies against God, rebelling against him, not just merely falling short and trying our best and falling short, but actually in rebellion against God, deserving of his wrath, deserving of his judgment. And for all who would admit their guilt, confess their sin, and put their faith in Jesus Christ and his death 
and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, you are forgiven in that moment. Converted, saved, filled with his spirit, eternal destiny, sure. No one can pluck you out of the hands of Jesus with him forever. In the New Testament, the apostle Peter speaks of God's mercy through Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you're here today and you've not admitted your guilt before God, if you're trusting in your own merit, you can't trust in God's mercy through Jesus and your own merit. You have to acknowledge I'm undeserving of God's grace. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve a life with God. I can't judge myself the way that people judge me. I've got to understand God's judgment and His wrath for sin against Him. You need to know God will judge you. But you need to know He's a God of mercy. He's a God of kindness. He's a God of forgiveness. He's shown this in sending Jesus. And if you would admit your guilt and trust in Him today, you will know His mercy now and forevermore. It's the greatest thing you can know in your life here on earth. You too can be set free from the captivity of sin, welcomed by Christ, received and adopted into his family, seated at his table in fellowship with Jesus now and forevermore. Do you know the mercy of Jesus? You may have come here today not knowing that, but you don't have to leave that way. You can talk to someone who brought you. You can talk to one of our pastors on the way out. We'd love to share with you more about how you can know God's mercy in Christ today. And brother and sister in the Lord, might we leave this time meditating on the mercy we've been shown by God in Jesus? And might we consider more how we can show that mercy? If we want to be light and salt in a dark world, might we consider how we can show compassion and mercy and kindness, that we might live more and more in light of His deep mercy, that we might show His mercy more. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would draw our minds and hearts even as we close out this service to the mercy that you've shown us as your people in Jesus. Lord, may that mercy humble us. Lord, may it remind us that the cross does not make much of us, but it makes much of you. It makes much of you and your holiness. It glorifies you. And Lord, may we be reminded of just how much we can enjoy this life you've given us because all we know as Christians is grace and mercy, even in difficulty and in hardship and sorrow. Even if we have a difficult prognosis from the doctor, we can appeal to you and your mercy at any moment and trust that you hear and you answer and you work according to whatever you ordain. And so Lord, we ask you to help us to trust you more or help us to grow in our faith and to grow in godliness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.